Chris Hahn here on the Aggressive Progressive Podcast. We don't just talk about progressive politics. We tell you how to win because that's what being an aggressive progressive is. Check us out every Tuesday. New episodes on Pandora, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't miss a week. The Aggressive Progressive Podcast with Chris Hahn. Welcome back to another episode of Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and occasionally Bobo. Um, I'm sure Bobo will be back soon. In fact, Bobo even owes you guys a solo episode himself. So we'll see when that one comes out. But for today, it is Bigfoot and Beyond with just Cliff. I have so much to catch you up on. I went to the Alabama conference. It was a, a great event, for the, especially for a first-time event. But it would be a good event anyway. But for a first-time event, it was outstanding. Uh, Anita Collier put that on. She uh, really organized it well. Ken Gerhard was there. I mean, Charlie Raymond was there. A lot of the usual suspects. Just It was a great, great conference. So if you live in that part of the country, be sure to consider going next year. I'm sure there's going to be one of those every year in that part of the country. It was just that kind of event. Saw some really interesting footprint casts at the event um, taken by Paul Halsey. Um, He was uh, featured on that Alabama episode of Finding Bigfoot way back in the day, but he has not been sitting still, apparently. He he had quite a few footprint casts, I think four, that he brought to the gig and shared them with me. Three are from the same trackway, which I found extraordinarily interesting. Really, really cool stuff. Um, If if I have any uh, museum members listening at the moment, I just posted those pictures today. Um, on the museum blog. So you guys can go enjoy that. And if you're not a museum member, well, maybe you should be because that's where I put everything nowadays. Another cool thing that surfaced during that particular uh, um, conference were uh, handprints, muddy handprints on an outhouse in Uwari National Forest. Um, really cool stuff. Kind of, it, it, it showed the same sort of features that a lot of these muddy handprints show. Not only just size, but you know, stunt like like stubby sort of fingers, extraordinarily wide palms, everything you'd want in a real Bigfoot handprint. So uh, that has also been shared with us. Oh gosh, I, I got back at seven thirty on Sunday night, and then Monday morning I drove to Walla Walla, Washington, um, for a quick and. Uh, uh, far too brief visit to do a, uh, a TV documentary for Japanese television. Um, it's supposed to air in August, but I don't live in Japan. Some of you might, but I don't live in Japan, so I probably will never see it. Um, or maybe the producers will send me a link if they remember. But I was out there with Moneymaker and Dr. Esteban Sarmiento and a few other folks, and we spent a few days in the blues. Cast a footprint. That was kind of cool. Um, of a real interesting size, too. One of these 12-inch footprints which is probably amongst the rarest size in the data set. There seems to be a lack of evidence between 9 and 13 inches long as far as footprint casts go. And that probably is because those are the sizes, obviously, most easily uh, 
um, misidentified as human, but this was no human print. It was clear as day that this was not made by a human. Uh, the footprint is just not of that sort of human shape. It's pretty cool. Found two of them, actually. I could only cast one. There's only depth to one, but there were toe marks in the second one. But the first one had some depth without any toe marks, so I kind of give and take there. But that was pretty cool, pretty exciting news. And, of course, I got to visit with Dar Addington on the way out of town. Dar is one of these unsung heroes of the blues. She's one of the network of people that associated closely with Wes Summerlin and, and Paul Freeman and all those, Bill Lowry and all those characters out there. Um because I'm always ranting about this, or I'm often ranting about this, is that Paul Freeman gets all the credit, but as, much, as good as Paul was and as much credit as he is due, there were a lot of other people involved in that network out there finding and casting footprints and sharing information. Um, Paul and Wes and Bill and those guys were so successful because they had people like you know Mark and Dar Addington, for example, out there um, kind of hitting the ground and putting boots on the ground and finding stuff for them. Um, and in fact, I, I talked to Dar. She's willing to come on the podcast at some point. Um, and she is just such a neat person and has a historical perspective on all those things that were happening out in the blues. And, and of course, her husband, Mark, just passed away a few months ago. So it was really good to catch up with Dar um, and go through her photo albums and take a look at some of these casts and stuff. <sighs> Man, so as you can tell, I've been busy. I've been far too busy, in fact, um, like butter spread over too much bread, as they say. But here I am. And then one final little bit of news for everybody out there. And this really has more to do with you guys than me or Bobo or anybody like that or even Bigfoot. This is a celebration of you because as of today, as of today, Bigfoot and Beyond has now had one actually over one million downloads since April since April. And that is all because of you guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. In fact, I'm going to thank every one of you individually right now. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Never mind. I won't do that. It's a Steve Martin joke from the earlier days. You may recognize that. But anyway, thank you very, very much for everybody and for for caring what we're talking about. I hope we're entertaining. I hope we're fun. I hope it's like hanging out and having beers with a couple friends. That's our intense. We're just talking squash. We do this anyway. And uh, now we do it so you can listen. I just want to thank all of you for helping us out, helping us make a successful podcast, which I never really thought that we'd be that successful. I just thought it'd be fun. So once again, thank you, all million plus of you. Not that there's a million people listening, but you've downloaded a million times. We sure appreciate that. (sighs) Okay, man, it's hard to work without Bobo here. I got to take all the words. So I'm going to call in a little bit of help here. We're going to call in our guest today. Um, Our guest today works for the North American Bigfoot Center. He's one of the managers here at the North American Bigfoot Center, and he was brought on, I don't know, six months ago or something like that, maybe more. I I don't know. I have a pretty elastic sense of time. Um, A year? Is that what it is? I I have no idea. Again, six months. It could have been yesterday. It could have been a couple years ago. But he works here. And, um, and he's really fit in great. And he, he offers the North American Bigfoot Center something that we didn't really have before. Um, he's, he's a bones expert, basically. His, his main gig is, of course, uh, um, his business called The Fossil Team, um, which is uh, paleontolo- paleontological, there's the word, paleontological education um, thing. I guess. He does classes. He does classes on dinosaurs and remains and bones and human um, evolution and all this kind of cool stuff. He's basically a dino nerd. 
I, I didn't even know they still had Jurassic Park movies, but apparently they do because every time anything dinosaur comes on the TV, this guy knows about it and he's nerding out and you know spitting Latin terms for dinosaurs all over the all over the floor here. It's a lot of fun to have them, and, and so everybody can welcome uh, Nico uh, Spatafora here at uh, the North American Bigfoot Center. Nico, welcome to Bigfoot and Beyond. It's awesome to be here. Yeah, well, good, good. I'm glad you think so. <laughs> Upstairs. Upstairs at the North American Bigfoot Center. At work. <laughs> yeah, at work. Well, just think about this. You're getting paid for this. Uh, that's fair. Yeah, that's fair <laughs> enough, right? <laughs> so I'm, I'm sure I flubbed a couple things in your introduction. Um, fix them for me. Tell us about yourself. <laughs> okay, well, um, I'm, I'm a paleontological nerd. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't want to say expert because there's no way to be an expert in anything. You're always learning, and if you think you're done learning, it's... You're not doing it right. So I'm a paleontology nerd. I'm a tracker. I'm uh, a trained tracker, a trained tracker. I used to teach tracking and, and wilderness survival and stuff like that. And um, I just love sharing information with people. And, and of course, I have a focus on dinosaurs. But if there's a mystery, I love looking into it. How did you come about to working here at the NABC? Uh, well, uh, at that previous job where I used to teach tracking and and survival and all that, um, with one of my groups, I had a, a year-long homeschool program I was teaching, and we had an encounter on one of our classes, and I came here and told you guys about it after visiting before then and being like, oh my gosh, you guys are right by my house. What, what happened at that encounter that you initially shared with us? Uh, well... We were out moving game cameras because uh, at the site, uh, it's a huge 300-acre property, and people who are in the, the membership of the museum will know it as the Willows. Uh, we were monitoring the animals in the area, not really talking about Bigfoot in general. We were just kind of going around looking at like the elk and the bear and deers and coyotes and all the stuff that were there. And uh, this area that we've been hitting all year – started having a lot of the other employees going there because they figured out the spot and there was great tracking in the area. So they wanted to teach their classes. So we moved the camera and uh, while moving to the camera, uh, moving the camera to the other end of the property where people don't normally go, there happened to be a couple of uh, Sasquatch in the area and uh, they growled at us. And uh, my co-lead actually saw it run behind the trail or run across the trail behind me while I was putting up one of those cameras. Now that sucks. You were facing the wrong direction or you could have had your own daylight Sasquatch sighting. Yes. <laughs> well, now what, what, would this, what did this person's face look like? Because you didn't know a Sasquatch was behind you. The face told you something. And how did you find out that they saw a Sasquatch? Well, we kind of, when the growl happened, it didn't really match any of the growls from animals I knew that were out there. And so we kind of figured that something was up. And uh, prior to this, I was an intern at the zoo and, and uh, working with those animals and also, you know, in all of my paleontology research that I've done for years, I connect a lot of that stuff to animals. And I know animal sounds pretty well based on all of this research. And the growls didn't match up. And so uh, we were kind of, you know, being really careful about what we were doing and, and moving around in a way that we could still kind of investigate the area. And when I put the camera up, uh, my, my partner was in front of me and his eyes just kind of exploded out of his head when it ran across the trail behind me. And so at that point I was like, okay, I missed it. 
something happened. And when I walked up to him after I finished tying the camera on the, the, uh, the tree, I was like, what happened? And he told me he saw it run across the trail. He just said, he said a Sasquatch or a Bigfoot. He said he saw a large dark shape run across the trail that was tall and not long, like an elk or a bear. So like skinny saw two legs. Hmm. Okay. So there's, wasn't anything else. It could have been. No. <laughs> okay. What time of day was this? This was like one or two o'clock. It would have been about one o'clock because it was right after we sat and had lunch. Gotcha. And what did you think about that? Not the lunch, but you know. <laughs> well, the lunch was mediocre. It was just a sandwich. But um, yeah, I, I was blown away because I was like, I, I mean, I've always been on the, the, the Sasquatch train. Like, oh yeah, they're probably real, but it's never going to happen to us. And then boom, it happened to us. And so I just couldn't really believe I didn't want to believe it actually because I didn't see it. And it wasn't until we went out and had investigations as a museum, as a team here that it really started to sink in that what happened there. And after I brought you guys out there to kind of look at the area and you were telling me like, Oh yeah, it was probably doing the whole castle and moating thing that it was like, Oh, it really sank in that it probably was a Sasquatch or two. And this was in March of March is when the encounter happened. March of what? Oh. What year? Is it 19 or 20? 19. 19. Yeah, it was right before COVID. Okay. But the March 2020, something else happened nearby. Yes. So uh, in 2020 was when we finally got out to investigate the area because we wanted to do it around the same time. And that night, while kind of walking around and and looking all over the place, we, we heard wood knocks over by uh, the parking lot in this area. And when we left, we decided instead of chasing the wood knocks, we were actually going to leave back to our fire. And uh, when we walked back, they followed us. And Connor, he saw one set of eyes, like the eye shine staring at us. I saw two from where I was standing. One was really low to the ground. And then I saw the one that he was seeing as well. And that one was about nine feet, maybe off the ground. Maybe No, eight feet. It was eight feet off the ground. And uh, uh, I know this because the day after, I was still working at this job. And the day after we had staff training and I had a a six foot tall person that was working with us go and stand at that area. And she ended up having to raise her hand to where the eyes were. And we measured that at about eight feet. Wasn't there a multiple witness sighting that predated your sighting at the property? Yes, Yes, there, there was, um, this person was part of a, uh, well, it was actually, yeah, two people and they were part of a year long, uh, adult apprenticeship. And so it was like a more in-depth thing. And this was their, their final like test of the year. And they were actually out there and they didn't bring any food or, or anything. They were supposed to find everything themselves. And they were, uh, they were hunting rabbits in this er- other area near where the wood knocks happened. The one night we saw the eye shine. And the person who told it to me was kind of in the same situation as me where they were part of the experience. They didn't see it, but their friend saw two watching them when he went in to go kind of figure out why they were freaking out a bit. Cause they, they were getting the whole, I'm being watched. I shouldn't be here. I'm seeing movement, but I don't know what it is. Kind of like probably what my partner saw where he saw, a shape he couldn't really identify that was still on two legs is what he saw, but not really making, making a connection there. And then when they left and kind of sat down in the open to just kind of calm down and be around the birds and stuff, when the friend went in, 
they saw the two Sasquatch clear as day staring at my friend. And he, you know, kind of reached down to his knife just to kind of make himself feel safe. And he popped the little uh, strap that was holding his knife down and that made a noise. And they both looked at him and then backed off and left. Okay, so he observed two Sasquatches, and those two Sasquatches were actually observing his partner. Yes. And so the, the the two humans were split up. Yes. Okay, that's how so many of these sightings do occur, is when uh, the Sasquatches are busy watching one person or set of people, and then the person who broke off from the herd, so to speak, gets mm-hmm. to see the Bigfoots. Right. Yeah, so out there, all, all you Bigfooters listening, that's a really valuable strategy. Break off, you know, go in smaller groups and maybe you'll have a better shot of one of these things. Now, is it, are those all, are those the two – are there anything else I'm missing from before uh, the time of the willows, so to speak? Like anything else in that general area that you can think of, either sounds or weird occurrences or prints or anything? Well, uh, prior to me really being involved in this, I wasn't keeping an eye out. Yeah. But – Thinking back, I remember when uh, we were first talking about both of those encounters out of the willows, um, we were talking about, oh, yeah, I've definitely found some deer with their skin peeled back and and necks broken and stuff like that. So some sign that I didn't really attribute to it at the time, but now I know could have been. But other than that, I don't know. People haven't really talked to me about their encounters out there. but it's possible that there's been some weird sounds because we know if they're there now and as consistently as they have been, they've been there before. And we've, and of course, the team here has also heard sounds at the site that cannot be attributed easily to any other animal. Very recently, yeah. Yeah, so tell us about that encounter. Uh, so we were actually, it was interesting, we were on the same trail that I had my initial encounter on out on the far side of the willows, and we were out placing another camera, which is a really interesting coincidence, but we weren't planning on being at the Willows for very long. We were actually going to leave to another site. Uh, It was just the, the time uh, had, had matched up to where, you know, we leave our cameras for a month before we go check them again. And we wanted to go check the cameras before we went out to another site, which we thought was going to be more active. Um, And we were leaving when one of these things screamed. It was, it was the, the whole woo sound. And, and we were like, what was that? That, that? And this was right after an ambulance that happened, too. So we were kind of confused if it was the ambulance or if it was another animal. And so Connor did a call back. And after he did the call back, they just went off. And there was the one or two of them. It was probably just one of them at this point, uh, thinking back. But the one of them that did that same sound again. But then a second one did started with that high-pitched sound, but then dipped down into a rawr, 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 and we ended up being there the rest of the night and never found anything after that, of course. But I, we actually split up to see if we could kind of see where they were going after, because they were obviously going to leave. They ended up also being a lot closer than we thought after we did some tests after. But uh, Connor and and uh, our other guy, Keith, he uh, the two of them went straight towards the sound, whereas I went around the outside uh, to kind of see if they would leave the area out of the, uh, the trail that, uh, the elk follow. And, uh, we ended up not seeing him of course, but, um, yeah, we dropped the ball cause that would have been a really, really good recording if we had our stuff going. <laughs> well, it's, it's Bigfoot. If you're not making mistakes, you're probably not Bigfooting. Exactly. <laughs> Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. So, 
Sonidos of our music. Sonidos of our voices. Sonidos of our stories. Listen to the sounds and voices of Latin music and culture with Pandora stations like RMX, La Vida en Pop, El Pulso and Satellites, and podcasts like Ruby Rosa and more. From music to stories, all that we are is in the sonidos of our culture. Listen now on Pandora. Okay, cool. Well, yeah, that, uh, and if, if you want to know more about the Willows, it's one of our frequent uh, topics of interest on the, the museum membership and all that sort of stuff. Our museum members know all about this, and they can see videos and things from the site and videos of the investigations and things. Um, but it's just one of several spots that we keep our fingers pretty close to the tabs of here at the NABC. Um, we've got that spot and a few spots out, Mount Hood National Forest, that we're monitoring pretty closely, and then one up kind of Kelso area, I think. Um so yeah, uh, but you know, the Bigfoot thing is fairly new to you, but wilderness stuff and, and animals in general is not. And, and new, you know, you've jumped right into the thick of things as far as Bigfoot goes. I don't know if you can ask for a better education than what you're getting here, but, um, but we're also learning a lot from you as well. So, and, and you, you were working on a project just recently that kind of, uh, that I guess is some sort of standard or metric used to measure intelligence in animals. Is that right? Right. Uh, it's called the encephalization quotient. And, and what, what is or, that all about? What, encephalization? Yeah, it's it's a measure of brain to body size in animals. And um, I actually learned about it while studying up. Uh, I was reading my, my current favorite book on dinosaur research called uh, The Rise and Fall of Dinosaurs by Steve Brusati. Um, and there's an a, a whole chapter in there that he just talks about T-Rex because who's not going to talk about T-Rex? Um, and he brings up this thing called the encephalization quotient because they were measuring about, they were trying to figure out how smart T-Rex was because there's a whole notion with Jurassic park and all that, that T-Rex was this big, dumb lumbering animal. that couldn't see you when you didn't move. And, and velociraptors were, are these smart, quick hunters that are smarter than primates and all this. But um, when we look at this scale here, it's, it's basically a scale of 0.1 to 10. And it, it, there's this whole math equation that you can plug in these numbers based on like measurements of the animal's mass versus the brain mass and the size and all that. And uh, I'm, I'm still trying to figure out how to use it right now. Um, but basically you can plot a chart and figure out how smart these animals are based on numbers. And it's, it's pretty accurate with what we, we visually see of these animals. So uh, to give you an example, um, humans on the scale are, are 7.4 to 7.8 or, or in the book it's is 7 to 7.5. Um, so varying sources get varying numbers, of course, um, which is pretty smart. But the scale maxes out at 10? Yeah. So it's I, we should take some comfort to know that there are things out there much smarter than us. <laughs> I guess so. But Well, uh, cephalopods, for example. Right. I, I'm willing to give that to squids and octopi mm-hmm. and that sort of stuff, especially since can we, can we just call the the cephalopod scale instead of, instead of the encephalopod and encephal encephalization encephalization. That's fair. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Yeah, well, it, the, it, it may not be well informed, but it's fair. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, the equation uh, works well with birds and mammals is what I was finding. Uh, it doesn't really work with reptiles, and and uh, why it worked with T Rex is because T Rex is more of a bird than it is a, a lizard. Right. Even though Saurus means lizard in Latin. Right. We, we thought they were originally the terrible lizards, but really they're the big, terrible birds. Right. 
Um, so dinosaurs aren't considered to be reptiles any longer? Well, they're still reptiles, but they're closer on the line to birds sure. than they are to, to say, you know, uh, your pet iguana, right? Mm-hmm. They, um, there's a, the family uh, that turned into dinosaurs and birds um, are called the archosaurs. And the archosaurs also includes crocodiles. So crocodiles are actually closer to birds than they are to turtles and snakes, right? Um, and uh, that's why this this still works. This this uh, equation still works with T. Rex and and other birds because it works for birds and mammals, but it doesn't really work with the other animals, right? I also don't know what is a ten on the scale. I've only ever seen humans being at the top at, at seven, which of course it's also per us saying that yeah, you know, yeah. us humans <laughs> our well, brains are deciding that i like that we had the humility to not make us 10 though although if, <laughs> if to be fair if boba was here he would also say he's a 10 That's no true. matter no matter what the scale <laughs> yeah um well let's see uh more examples so the humans are are, are the 7.4 to 7.8 or 7 to 7.5 and um dolphins are 5.3 on the scale and and uh you go all the way down to like a dog is 1.2. And and uh, what's really cool is chimps and orangutans come in at about 2 to 2.5, uh, which is a super cool number, looking at T-Rex at least, because T-Rex is also 2 to 2.5, which means T-Rex is as smart as primates. Oh, so it's possible, if, if this is correct, and we have no way of checking, I mean, until we clone a T-Rex, right? right. Um, um, it's possible that... Since orangutans and chimps have some sort of symbolic thought processes, you know, they can communicate to some degree through either the sign language, you know, like, like the, the gorilla can, Coco the gorilla, but also through, through these uh, pictographs and, and uh, symbols and stuff that they've used. I've seen them use these things on some documentaries that perhaps even T-Rex could do that as well. Potentially. We don't know because, we, again, we yeah, don't yeah. have any T-Rexes around, but according to this scale, T-Rex is up there with chimps and orangutans. So you could potentially reason with a T-Rex not to eat you. Well, you can't reason with a chimp, though. Yeah. Maybe true. an orangutan, but a chimp's still going to rip your face off. That's true. That's um, true. But let's get back to the Bigfoot yeah. thing because you you decided that it would be fun, a fun exercise, to say the least, to address the intelligence of a Sasquatch using this same uh, methodology. Right. Um, just, you know, I, I thought about this because I've, um, I've been working on this stuff with, with T-Rex and all that. And um, we know that also I should point out gorillas, you know, Coco learned sign language, but gorillas are only a 1.4 to 1.7 on the scale. So they're not as smart as chimps and, and orangutans, but again, she still learned sign language and a whole new language to communicate with us. Right. Mm-hmm. So this is also a whole thing where it's like, yeah, we have a number of how smart the animal is, but individuals can probably be smarter than other individuals, right? Yeah, and you know, something else uh, that, that comes to mind right now is I've always thought that um, hum- the human search for intelligence, whether it's in the other animals or whether it's um, non-human intelligences, you know, mm-hmm. space things or whatever, or interdimensional things. Yeah, I think it's kind of a it's kind of a culturally bound expectation there because um, we're looking for our kind of intelligence, and I think that's unfair. I just think that's it's unfair to judge dolphins by what humans value as intelligence. Um, it's just like it's unfair to judge Sasquatches by what humans uh, find to be valuable about intelligence. You know, like our, our scales are probably pretty different. 
Um, Bobo, uh, again, Bobo's here in spirit. So Bobo pointed out to me that Sasquatches are way smarter than people because they don't have jobs or pay taxes. So as far as Bobo's scale goes, the Sasquatches are way smarter. But when you're talking about, you know, um, perhaps reasoning or symbolic thought or math or fire and tool use or something, then then humans, of course, are going to skew that they're, they're going to skew that scale. So we're, we end up on top. Right. So that's why you got to take all these these IQ and EQ tests with a grain of salt. But looking at the scale, I it was really hard. I, I I still haven't figured out the math, so I'm going based off of the very little I could find online. There was a lot of people talking about brain mass and body size of Paranthropists and Australopithecus, but I never got a number from those. I did get some numbers for uh, species like uh, Homo floresiensis, which may or may not be some form or related to the orang pendek or whatnot. But um, Homo floresiensis on the scale is a three. Hmm. And uh, thinking about that, uh, there was also – st- Connor was kind of helping with me with this downstairs. And, and right before we came up, he said he found somebody saying that Paranthropus robustus, at least, was, was a, also a three, uh, which is a little higher than I was expecting. According to what he found, I would kind of just based on the numbers I saw, I would put them probably around chimp and orangutan, the the two to two point five. Well, uh, Australopithecines did have another million years of uh, evolution before right. since they broke out, or at least that since they we broke off from chimps. So mm-hmm. that has to count. A million years has to count for a little. Probably. Yeah. So I think three probably sits pretty well. Yeah, I'm just thinking of like the at least with the Paranthropus. They're accounting head size and brain size, and there's there's the sagittal crest, which adds a ton of muscle on it. So and the, the zygomatic arches. Exactly. Yeah. So the, the brain case is going to be a little smaller than we expect looking at an actual animal, mm-hmm. right? So it is probably a little more than, than chimps and orangutans, honestly. But, I mean, I don't know. I still have to do the math, and I'm still working it out. Did you do this for Giganto? I did not get to that yet. I was oh. trying to work on that. But Gigantopithecus, I mean, if we look at the Grover Krantz skull. Which is pretty much all we have. Which is all we have. Um, if that is our basis, that brain case is a lot smaller comparatively to Paranthropus or an Australopithecus skull. Think like Lucy. And on top of that, they have much bigger bodies. So theirs is probably going to be around the gorilla. Or a little bit more or a little bit less. So we don't know until we find the rest of the skull or at least parts of it so we can start putting a brain case together, right? Mm-hmm. But we still just have the jaws and a bunch of teeth. Yeah, yeah. Well, you can look at the Patterson-Gimlin film subjects' um, head shape mm-hmm. and kind of discern a lot about their intelligence level. Um, yeah, sure, they have big brains, but big brain doesn't matter as much as you might think in, in some ways. Well, they're, they're big animals. Let me say that. They're really big animals. And just because they have a big head doesn't mean all that's brain. Um, because when you look at the there's, when you look at the composite photograph that is on Bill Munn's website, uh, themunnsreport.com, and you look at the composite photograph of all those different pictures of Patty as she turns her head and looks at the camera and then turns back you get a really good sense of the three-dimensionality of her head. And you start seeing that the brain case on that head is not as big as the head at all. In humans, it is because we have this big bulbous head popping up above our eyes. But just shortly above Patty's eyebrow, eye, eye, uh, 
the brow ridges, not the eyebrows, I, although I guess technically they're in the same place, just right behind the brow ridge, her head basically slants almost 90 degrees back to the top of the sagittal crest. So all of that bulbous you know, encasement where the brain is in humans is, is not there. It's just simply not there in Patty. And you can actually, in addition to that, you can actually see her zygomatic arches, these, these arches that kind of go underneath the eye. But, um, and, and they're there also to, uh, to anchor the chewing muscles, just like the sagittal crest is. Um, so it seems like most of Patty's head is frankly devoted to chewing more than thinking. Um, at least that's what it looks like to me. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, that's what uh, Paranthropus's skull really looks like as well, uh, because we know looking at Paranthropus fossils and getting carbon uh, isotopes off of the teeth that uh, Paranthropus had a very, a very, uh, what, what's the word? Um, well, they chewed the heck out of everything. Yes, that's, it was a very... Uh, um, You're looking for a fancier word than that? I don't know what it is. No, I was just thinking like, like fibrous. There we go. Oh, I was fibrous. looking for a very fibrous diet. So lots of grasses and 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 potentially even like early bamboos and stuff like that. I mean, when the, when it was first discovered, uh, they, they had a different name, like uh, Zygenthropus, I think, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and and they, they called it Nutcracker Man because the size of the teeth made it look like they, they could crack nuts with just their teeth. I think um, they, they had four or was it eight times the surface area for chewing than, uh, than humans do. And of course, um, structures in the skull to accommodate the muscles that would be necessary to deal with that level of chewing, you know, bark and whatever else they're chewing. It wasn't, you know, it, it wasn't big league chew, man. They were, they were gnawing on some serious stuff. Exactly. And I think Sasquatches probably do the same. Maybe that's a, a good direction to go. So in, in your, um, in, in your studies and in your general woodsmanship, um, as far as food items here in North America for a Sasquatch, what are we looking at? Is, is there an abundance or would they have to work really hard? Or what, what are your thoughts on Sasquatch diet? Well, in the environments that they tend to live in, at least here in the Pacific Northwest, it's a lot of temperate rainforest, which means there is a lot of edibles in terms of plant material uh, if they're willing to eat that stuff. We're talking like oxalis and miner's lettuce. And, and these are also things that I'm pointing out that we could eat as a person. They could prob- They might be able to eat things that we can't eat. So there's probably more out there that I don't know about because I've focused on things that I could teach my students how to eat. Um, but there's also all the wildlife, all the deer and elk, which we know they're going after, and, and various amounts of berries, huckleberry, blackberry, mountain blueberry, stuff like that. But the berries, I, I, I never, never really look at the berries too closely because those are only available at – one very small time of year. Right. Like I, I'm really thinking, uh, so between August and beginning of October, yeah, there's a feast, right? Right. But other than that, like what do you do in, in April? Well, they're probably eating a lot like bears. Mm-hmm. Bears, when the berries are out, bears are gorging on berries, right? Sasquatch could probably be gorging on berries as well because they're everywhere. But then when that food source isn't there, they're upping the amount of meat they're going for. They're upping the amount of just hearty woody diet that they're eating so it it especially out here it all varies on the season and and what's available and and that would go with any other environment as well but i would feel especially out here in in a rainforest environment where 
the super tasty things, I think like the salmon run as well. They're probably going after salmon when the salmon are here, but they're not going to strictly be salmon eaters. Mm-hmm. They die the rest of the year, you know? So it just depends on what's available at what point of the year. And scientists and people and everybody have the, have this notion to like label things. This thing is a carnivore. This thing is an herbivore. This thing is an omnivore. It only eats this, this, and this. Any predator that is out there is going to eat whatever it can when it can get it. it is, they are all opportunistic. So if a Sasquatch wants to eat an elk, but it manages to catch a squirrel, it's not just going to throw the squirrel away, right? If a Sasquatch manages to catch a deer, great. There's also a bunch of berries next to the deer. Maybe I'll eat the berries as well. And then when we come, when we look at other animals like like cats and let's take cats and deer for example. So like cougars and deer. Cougars are carnivores. Deer are herbivores. Cats will sometimes eat grasses and stuff to help supplement their diet and make everything pass through a little easier. Not a whole lot, but they do every once in a while. And then deer. I, there's videos. Just look online of deer eating ducklings. Right? They'll pick up if they see an opportunity, they'll get it to supplement their diet as well. Have you seen that uh, that 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 YouTube video of the deer eating a human rib bone? I have not, but is is there a picture of it downstairs? Because I I've seen no, other no. pictures of deers eating bones. Oh, the, yeah, the, <laughs> down there the, the elk and whatnot on the, on the where the bones display at the museum. That's different. But there's actually a video. Um, you know what, you know what a body farm is. Oh right? wait, yes, I have seen this. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. amazing. It gives a whole new perspective on Bambi. You know, <laughs> like like yeah, yeah, a deer will eat you. How cool is that? Yeah, and it just shows that bodies are recycled very quickly in an environment too. Yeah. So yeah, for those of you who haven't seen it and you want to see something truly grotesque, um, you can you know a body farm is a is a, it's a scientific establishment. Um, there's a lot of them in the south for some reason. So I don't know what's up with you guys in the south, but you allow these things down there. I guess you don't want to live downwind from one because it's a it's a large, probably a few hundred acre uh, um, piece of property where there's a forensic. Um, university of some sort. Uh, it's a forensic study area where if you leave your body to science, um, they'll, if, and, and it gets sent to one of these body farms, they'll leave it out. They'll leave your corpse out in, in a variety of circumstances, maybe half buried, maybe half submerged, hung in a tree, who knows, you know, because this is a place where forensic scientists can study how human cadavers decompose. And this, of course, helps them solve crimes later. Like if they, somebody stumbles across, you know, a, a partially rotted away human body in the woods somewhere and they tell the authorities, the authorities can come in and do comparison studies. And, and it's like, oh, based on our studies at these body farms, this body was left out this long or under these circumstances and this kind of weather or whatever, you know. So that's what these are for. And um, they generally speaking, they, they kind of cover the bodies with cages or sometimes they don't because um, they also want to know how animals affect the decomposition of human corpses as well. Uh, but they don't, definitely want to keep the vultures off of them, right? But anyway, look it up. On YouTube, there's this wonderful video taken on a, a trail camera that was placed on a human corpse in one of these body farms somewhere. And there's a deer standing over it and the deer is chewing away at the body and it has a human rib bone in its mouth. It's pretty phenomenal. 
it's perhaps not suitable for, for work or, you know, for, you know, grandma's birthday party. This isn't the thing you want to break out or something. It's not a Christmas video, but if, you know, if no one's around, check it out. It's totally weird and cool and, and just macabre and gives you some perspective on why we don't find other animals bones like Sasquatches in the woods. So, cause deer need the calcium. They need the calcium for their horns and whatnot. They have to grow these horns every year, and it must take a tremendous amount of calcium and energy. Uh, I learned recently that deer antlers are a weaponized form of bone cancer. Weaponized? Yeah. So, like, they got there was a ancestor way in the past that got bone cancer, and somehow it helped them do better. And suddenly, all of these species of artiodactyls were coming up where their bones were growing out of their heads in various ways. And some of them liked it in this way and some didn't. And eventually we had antlers. So that's why antlers grow super fast and fall off every year because they are a modified weaponized form of bone cancer. Wow. Wow. Some sort of like a weaponized, uh, like a genetic thing in there. Right. Don't get any ideas. Governments. (laughs) Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. All right. So um, let's get back to the Bigfoot thing again. So you told me earlier that even before these things started happening, before you were with people with encounters, before you started working here at the museum, um, you already thought the Sasquatches were probably real or definitely real. You clarify for me. Uh, Probably real. Okay. Probably real. Why? Well, why would you think such a crazy thing? (laughs) Uh, Because I I like to think the best in people. No. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) um, I I just, I I look at science in a way that it kind of makes me mad when a lot of scientists don't actually look at this phenomenon because the purpose of science is to look at a mystery and try to find an answer for it. And the whole, we're not going to look into it because it's weird. That completely goes against science. So what are people seeing? What are people doing when it, and what's the answer, right? And so that was the initial thought, like, okay, there's probably something out there. I don't know what it is. Uh, but then as I continued studying paleontology and learning about the Australopithecines and all of these animals and seeing that like, Oh it's, yeah, it just, it looks like a Bigfoot, but, that tall, not huge, you know, small, not big. And I was like, okay, so it's, there's potentially a fossil record for it. We have no connection yet, but it's potentially there. And I mean, at the time I didn't know all the backstory of all of the videos out there. And so anytime I saw something that looked relatively real, I was like, oh, there's a Bigfoot right there. Right. And then, you know, some videos are hoaxed and some videos aren't. And, and, so some of those are gone and others are like, oh, I didn't think that was real, but oh, it is. So um, I've learned a lot more since I've started here and started hanging out with you guys because before I, I knew nothing really about it. And then looking at it, the tracking actually really helped learning how to track and then eventually teaching tracking. That was kind of really what solidified it for me was when I was like, oh, my gosh, the feet are moving. Fake feet don't do that. And uh, here at the museum, when people bring up faking footprints, I'm like, well, the only person I know of that got really, really close to faking a footprint and fooling Jeff Meldrum on it 
was Les Stroud when he did his whole Bigfoot Survivor Man thing. And I thought Jeff caught on. It was he, he did. Okay, he almost fooled him. As, as, I see. So like there was a point where he was like, "Oh wait, hold on a second. So he almost got him, but he he did catch uh, got on. He did catch on, and he spent fifteen thousand dollars on making those fake feet. So. <laughs> I'm not a rich guy, so spending $15,000 on a hoax seems a little much, you know? Yeah. And and so it's stuff like that. And then when we eventually found those those tracks out at the bog and I saw the whole trackway with the elk running and I was like, there it is. Like, it's now it's solidified. There's been some weird things I can't really – like, before when it was like the thing ran across the trail, it was weird – you guys said it was probably a Bigfoot. I was still in my mind like, eh, yeah, but we didn't really see it that well. And then the eye shine, it was like, yeah, I could kind of see an outline. The eyes didn't make sense. There was no sound like a, a raccoon was scratching around the tree when it walked away. So like the things were adding up, but there's still no definitive answer. But then we tracked one and I look at the bones and I'm like, okay, it's got to be it. They're, they got to be real looking at that stuff. And then when we heard the sounds the other day too, it's like it, Every time something happens, like I'm already in it, but then I just get more in it, right? Every time we get something in, it's like that's really good. So you're talking you're talking specifically about the trackway at the bog, right? Yeah. Okay. Now we have a cast of that here at the museum that uh, uh, is is congruent with what we would expect from a Sasquatch, like a deeper um, ball, which goes all the way back to the base of the metatarsals and whatnot. But describe this trackway that you found so compelling and the circumstances, what it was doing. Because, you know, every trackway tells a story of a little, of a minute base or less uh, in this animal's life. Um, what did you see that you found so compelling? Well, the first thing when I'm teaching tracking and and looking at a track is I try not to be like, Oh yeah, that immediately what that is. Like that's a bear. That's a person. That's a deer. Um, unless it's like incredibly clear. And these tracks weren't super clear at first, or, or I should say they, they're not super clear. You got to kind of point it out. And if you come to the museum, I will happily point you point out the track in the cast. Um, but looking at the trackway and it, it wasn't the track itself that made it more real to me. It was the behavior I saw because there were two separate trackways. There was the elk trackway where you saw the elk running across the bog and in the top, the top layer of the bog, there was this layer of algae that spread from the trackway. And then the, the Sasquatch trackway, it was very clearly these wide steps because it was running out like, like, Spinosaurus and Jurassic Park three chasing everybody in the beginning of the movie, All right, like, bursting out nerd. I know, <laughs> uh, bursting out of the, the, the bushes and chasing the things across the open field. Right. And you saw one, two, one, two running across the bog. And it was actually like the elk were going straight across. Whereas the, the Bigfoot was coming and it was coming in at a curve because it was catching up to these things. And you saw that in the algae as well and seeing that and how like figuring out that, oh, the rocks, because it was placed, it was underwater. And so the rocks splashing out from when the, the uh, Sasquatch slammed his foot into the ground and then landing around the shape of the foot is it was just a tracking dream right there because the tracks itself weren't super clear, but you could see the behavior and the shape. And that is what made it look really good in person you could see the damage done to the substrate by the foot yes yeah the pressure and the, the and since the tracks were laid down into water 
it started on dry land or pretty kind of marshy land, but dry land nonetheless. And it went into the pond that's there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that even the water force as the, the foot was pushing down, pushed aside the substrate even before the foot hit the ground. Mm-hmm. And, and, and correct. I, I never did see the, I saw the cast, of course, and I saw photographs, but I was, I didn't, you guys didn't call me. I didn't go up there, but or I was out of town or something horrible happened. But, um, the, wasn't the, 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 um, the, the plants on that were floating on the surface of the water weren't they split yeah yeah the algae on top it was it was oh the algae on, a, floating on the surface of the water yeah that was what was uh, creating the like second pathway above the tracks oh I now, misunderstood what also was really cool is we kind of tracked back onto the dry land where the tracks would have disappeared because the ground was really hard and and the grass had sprung up from when this happened. And so there was no trackway in the grass, but we kind of like guessed like, okay, it probably came from right there. And we went into the woods and there's this little clearing and an opening in the, the tree line where it was literally, it almost looked like it was literally just sitting there waiting for something to get close. So we could jump out and, you know, chase these elk like an ambush predator would. It had the perfect little TV window to just sit and wait a, a hunting blind, if you will. <laughs> Uh, so it was just, it was incredibly exciting, um, to see that. Now you found, uh, other trackways since then, correct? Just the one recently. Just the one that recently. I was a part of. Okay. I, like I've seen all the pictures and stuff that get sent to us and, and I, I get to be, a. uh, a jerk a lot of the time and tell people what they found as bear tracks or deer tracks. But every once in a while, there'll be a trackway that's sent in. That's like, Oh, that's interesting. But I, the only track I have found was actually the one from a couple of weeks ago uh, that we cast. And that would be the first one that I found. That's that one right that, over there. That, that one, one over, there. over there. Yeah. Okay. Then that's, that's uh, of course, in one of our spots that we codenamed Easter Island, um, Easter. And it's on the same half mile stretch of road that we've gotten, I think four track finds now, in the last 15 months, 16 months, probably now. Uh, something like that. I don't something know the like numbers that. off the top of my head. Yeah. I don't know. It's all math, but mm-hmm. um, so yeah, but this, this one little spot is certainly supplying us with more than our fair share of Bigfoot evidence, which I think is interesting. Um, makes me not want to go anywhere else. Honestly, mm. just try to go there more frequently because if, if we found them four times in the last year and a half, uh, how often are they there and just, they get washed away by the rain or traffic or whatever else is going on. Because these, I I found tracks on that road. They're not obvious. Sasquatch prints are very rarely obvious at all. And that has to do with a lot, a lot to do with their, the, the, the structure of the foot, a big, soft padded foot doesn't leave, doesn't leave really sharp prints. A lot of the times barely impressed at all. Um, and you're, you're hoping that maybe the toes flick some dirt aside or you see some sort of perturbance in the ground in order to clue you in to look more closely. It takes a pretty good tracker to find any of this stuff. Now, how did you find that last print? I just looked down. It, That's like, it. Oh. Quite literally, we were like, we, we knew there had been tracks in this spot. So we kind of hit it really hard whenever we're there, just in case. But we were looking around and uh, a uh, off-road vehicle had come in and just torn up the road prior to us being there. And so like one, it was fresh, this, this, uh, specific road we were on, which was really cool. But this part, the, um, the car didn't go on. And so we were looking at it 
and we were just kind of walking around. The, the light was going down, and I was looking down, and I saw what looked like toes. Mm-hmm. And then I, I kind of bend down, and I go, hey, look at that. And sure enough, as I bend down, you can start to see the the top of the foot and then the the mid-tarsal break, and then the um, the heel was not very clear on, on this track. But um, you could see it in the ground better than you can in the cast. Uh, and that was that. I just happened to look down. I was like, oh, I, in fact, I almost stepped on it, which was really cool <laughs> to be like, oh, oh, there it is. <laughs> yeah. You kind of took the magic out of that one. Like, How did you find that? I just looked down. Yeah, says. I know. Well, there, there you go, guys. Just look down. Just look down. More I, I, yeah, just the walking around. I'm so used to the Willows, too. There's so many elk tracks. The, the Willows is full of elk. And no matter where you go, the ground is torn up by their tracks. So it's actually really hard to find anything else there other than elk. So I, it's almost trained my eyes to pick things up that aren't elk. <laughs> and so I saw some some shape that didn't look like a normal track to me. And so it was like, oh, there it is. I see it. Were these other tracks ruined by the ATV that went through? No, no, because they were coming off of a different road than the ATV. I see. Okay. How old do you think they were? Oh, they were definitely older than the ATV track. So the ATV probably ran over some other tracks that could have been there and were gone because of that. Uh, these tracks, when we found them, were at least a week old, mm. I'd say. Because we had a spit of really good weather before we went out. And and uh, a little bit of rain, but I'd say I'd say at least a, a week mm-hmm. what, by the time we got out there. I think – so if we had gone there instead of the place we did the prior week, because this was one of our like regular days that we went out too – um, if we had gone out the prior week, we might have had some good things. <laughs> yeah. 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 But uh, this brings up a really cool uh, – speaking of the willows and this road that we've found multiple tracks on, this is starting to show that like they're not moving around as much as people really like to think they do. They're staying in the same areas. And we're starting to chart, at least with the willows and all of the encounters that have happened, a path that they're taking. And we know this one spot at Easter Island, of course, but where before and where after mm-hmm. at this spot is what we still have to figure out. With the willows, we know point A, we know entrance point, and we know exit point. And a lot of stuff in between as well, which is really cool. Now, you, you may – maybe you don't know this. I certainly don't know this. I know that like say bear, for example, frequent certain places because there's a food item there or something that they want. They have something that they like there. I'm assuming all animals do that. But do animals take the, the same route to get there? And maybe not the same path or anything like that because I know that I've heard stories of like a deer, for example, I think whitetail or blacktail. They, they take different routes to go through the same area because they're smart. You know, the, the deer are a lot smarter than people give them credit for. Um, and I've heard that same thing about Sasquatches as well. So they probably won't take the same pathway, but they'll go to the same areas. So do these animal, do other animals take this circuitous route where they kind of this spot and then you can – usually find them at this other spot next and then another spot after that, like in a certain order or do they just kind of randomly go and go to the same spots? Cause there might be food there. I think it varies. I don't know for sure. Okay. I don't know either. So I don't I, know. is a good answer. Yeah. I don't know. I know for a fact that bears do it hmm. because bears don't normally have a lot to worry about. And so they'll just take the same path day after day. Okay. Um, but I could see deer mixing it up because they're a, 
like the top thing that gets eaten out in the woods if for big animals, you know? Um, and I mean, putting trail cameras up at the willows for as long as I did in the same areas and knowing that like cougars, for example, have passed through the area definitely more than I've caught them on the camera. I've caught a cougar on the camera once and it was a really bad picture, but I know they've been there. In fact, the last summer, there was two of them that ran across the road by where the bear hangs out all the time. So I I don't know. I'm leaning no, but. Well, there are certainly safer yeah. pathways into the area than right. others. Although there are not a lot of people around there anyway, so they can just run across the road and never be seen too. But I, I was thinking more like at, a, at an Easter Island, like if we can find out where they've been before or after that might give us some sort of clue. And really I, what we're doing here is for, for those people who don't know is we're doing science right now. We have some information that we're looking for more information and we're trying to build a que- the, the question is, do they do this? Do they go to, we do, do they go to places in an order and we're hypothesizing maybe, yeah, maybe they do. And so we're looking for evidence to back that up. That's what science is um, asking a question and trying to figure it out. It's not, super, super fancy a lot of the times. It's something as simple as this. And I would encourage all of our listeners to build questions about around your own scientific re- or around your own Bigfoot research and make it scientific. Um, simple things like, do they go to the same places in order? Well, that's an interesting question. And that kind of question, if we can get an answer to it, might yield some really interesting photographs or encounters or footprints. So I would encourage everybody to kind of build their own research using questions and then trying to figure out if your answers are correct, because then you're doing science. But whatever, I'll get off my uh, high, I'll get off my soapbox now. <laughs> so, OK, so Nico, we're, we're getting towards the end here. Um, but before we do end, when, when you first came on board here at the NABC, I'm sure you had, you had some preconce- preconceived notions about how it would be and all that sort of stuff. But what's the, is there, are there any surprises or takeaways after you've worked here now for God knows how long? Yeah. Yeah. Because uh, like I said earlier, actually, I, I, I kind of want to bring it back to a point that I wanted to make when talking about learning Sasquatch. I shouldn't say learning Sasquatch were real, but really solidifying that Sasquatch were real. Um, one of the biggest things uh, – with uh, being here is connecting how much I've learned here to all of the stuff that I'm, I have learned and I'm still learning with paleontology and how well these animals just fit into the natural environment and learning how really not super special they are. <laughs> like, cause there's the notions of, Oh, they teleport and all oh, they're, they're special you know, talking to me telepathically and stuff like that. And and it's like, well, we can't really scientifically prove that, but we can prove that they're eating deer or they like this type of plant versus this one. We're starting to figure out if not, or, or why they're moving in the ways they do Like it all just works with how other animals work. Like orangutans and cougars have a lot of similarities in how they move through an area as Sasquatch do and bringing it back to the, the whole like where maybe where they came from. If we're looking at them like, um, like like you like thinking they're paranthropists or or I lean they're, they're an, you lean towards the paranthropist being a, a possible ancestor, and I, I I do as well. There's this notion that Australopithecines never left Africa. 
humans did, or, or homo species did, but, but the Australopithecines never did. So there's no way a Australopithecine like a Sasquatch, if that's what it is, could be in North America. Well, if Sasquatch live in an environment like a temperate rainforest, like Gigantopithecus would, their fossils aren't going to be left behind very easily, as we can see with Gigantopithecus. Large animals don't fossilize very well because it, you got to bury the animal. And uh, a really great connection to animals moving, and we're pretty sure they're in the area, we just haven't found them yet, is actually the woolly rhino. I can't remember the scientist's name. I'd have to go back and look. But he was talking about how um, in the Yukon, all of the, uh, there's tons of fossils of animals that are in Russia because of the land bridge between uh, North America and Asia. Tons of animals that lived in Russia, like woolly mammoths and lions and bears and all that, are also found in North America, but not woolly rhinos. And they're the only ones we can really think of not being in North America. They were probably here, though. We just haven't found them yet. So who's to say Australopithecines didn't leave and we just haven't found them yet? You know, that's just the theory I'm pointing out. Yeah. Well, and, you know, <laughs> um, until uh, Homo floresiensis was discovered, there is no indication that um, something in the, the more, uh, I guess the term isn't archaic anymore. It's something else. They, they don't like the word archaic now. It's, it's right. I don't know. Maybe. Uh, I don't know. But uh, but but the more archaic species of Homo weren't known outside of Africa until Homo floresiensis, and now God, I, I think even Darren Nash says no, those were Australopithecines, period, which I think is fascinating because that's the first chance we have of saying that yeah, maybe there is something to this Paranthropus idea and them radiating out of Africa, right? I think I think that's really cool. But you just mentioned something that never really occurred to me, but it does make perfect sense. Um, uh, about the fossilization process, about how large animals don't fossilize as readily as small ones. Um, and it totally makes sense. But for those people who may not know much about the fossilization process, can you address that? Because that's one of the questions we do get here at the museum a fair amount. Are there fossils of Bigfoot? Right. Which there isn't. And I also, um, there's not a whole lot of fossils of, uh, good fossils of a whole lot of ape animals in in particular i've seen and no like i think chimpanzees the first if i correct me if i'm wrong and maybe you don't know the exact number because i i it's kind of fuzzy with me as well i think the first fossils of chimpanzee ancestors were was like 2006 yeah it was very recently yeah really recently and i if i also correct me if i'm wrong we don't have a fossil record for gorillas i don't think we do right no. both of those live in rainforest environments so Acidic soil takes down bones. It, it breaks down bones very, very quickly, which is why we don't have a whole lot of bones from rainforest environments in the fossil record. We do have some. We don't have a whole lot. But now, and of course, an acidic environment, what, what really that means? And again, I don't know much about geology, um, but I know art and I know what I like. <laughs> but, uh, but basically, an acidic environment will arise when you have a ton of plant species dropping leaves all the time. So basically, the more cover there is for an animal, the more acidic the soil is going to be because, you know, it, it, it's I, I, uh, because the, the green stuff. Think about your compost pile, gardeners. The green stuff makes your soil more acidic. Right. And then that's kind of what we're dealing with here. Yeah. Yeah. And so on top of that, an animal has to be buried in a suitable type of it can't just be any sediment. It has to be buried in a good set. So mudstone or sandstone are both really, really good 
types of sediment that fossilize really well. That's why we have really good fossils of T-Rex because it was buried in a lot of mudstone. And also circumstance. How was the animal buried? If the animal just lays down and dies, nothing's going to bury it. unless like, um, think in Canada, there's a dinosaur provincial park. An entire herd of the Ceratopsian dinosaur called Pachyrhinosaurus was buried because it was caught in a, they were caught in a flash flood. And so we have a lot of super complete skeletons of Pachyrhinosaurus, but we don't have a whole sauropod, for example, the large long neck dinosaurs. Um, the biggest ones like Dreadnoughtus and Argentinosaurus, we have just like leg bones and a neck vertebra. And we have to figure out the entire rest of the dinosaur based on other dinosaur skeletons that have been found. So it takes very specific circumstances and very uh, specific types of sediment to fossilize an animal in a way that is not going to just degrade and destroy the bone. And it has to be sedimentary rock, right? And, and yes. Because sedimentary rock layers are, are those that are more subject to erosion. Mm -hmm. And then uh, like like sand and whatnot gets eroded either by water or wind and then compacted by, by pressure. Right. Ge geologic pressure and whatnot. Because um, obviously igneous rock. You know, lava rock doesn't make fossils, man. It, it makes hamburger. It makes hamburger <laughs> meat, you know, like it cooks the animal instead of like buries it and keeps it like away from oxygen and that sort of stuff. Okay. So, so the, the fossils are, are extraordinarily rare. Did I've, I've read somewhere, was it like less than 2% of all animal species have been fossilized that we know of there, or at least that we have remains of through fossils. I, I don't know off the top of my head, but no one knows, I guess nobody knows because we're never going to know everything that's out there and assume, assume that we have a complete fossil record is incredibly wrong. You know, we're never going to find everything that was once on this planet. Yeah, and no, no, matter what, no matter what the lineage. No matter what the lineage. Yeah, because I hear a lot of people um, poo-pooing human evolution. Um, as far as science goes, um, they say, well, since, it's, since we don't know everything, we can't believe anything. It's nonsense. It's just bad logic, in my opinion. Um, it, it, we certainly know that evolution is a real thing, and human evolution is part of that. And just because we're missing certain pieces of the puzzle, it, it, that doesn't mean you can't tell that the puzzle shows you a landscape. You know, right. Yeah. So uh, it's so interesting. This is a, one of the most interesting times to be alive as far as human evolution and the study of Sasquatch goes. Um, and I really don't think you can study Sasquatch without being somewhat proficient in human evolution, because that's the lineage that Sasquatch is on somewhere. Um, whether they're more ape-like, you know, um, uh, orangutans or whatever, something like that, or more hominin-like, like Paranthropus, like I suspect, you got you got to know a little bit about this. Otherwise, you're just cheating yourself out of some sort of knowledge. Yeah, again, I, I would recommend everybody become proficient to some degree in the basics of human evolution. Um, it's a real deal, and it really is happening. It's, even, it's happening now. We're still evolving, turns out. And Sasquatch fits in there somewhere question is where so we shouldn't expect to find any fossils or god but wouldn't it be great it, oh man it would be amazing i you know i think we have a shot i think we have a shot at something because um you know you look at all these uh, mammoths and, and rhinos and stuff that are pulled from permafrost right mm -hmm. there's a shot at a sasquatch or a neanderthal or something like that but there's a legit shot at a sasquatch getting pulled out of one of those places um or uh, on the very end of an uh, of a glacier now that we're kind of losing all the glaciers because global warming and stuff um, that often or often enough, big extinct animals are pulled out of the side of glaciers and they're not even fossilized, right? They're just frozen. No. So those aren't fossils. There, there's um, 
two types of extinct animal parts that can be found that are not fossils. And one of them is, is through the glaciers, like we were just talking about, like finding a frozen mummy of an animal. Like uh, we've got, I mean, we found mummified ice age homo sapiens, like Oxy the Iceman mm-hmm. um, and, uh, you know, woolly rhinos and tons and tons of mammoths. The, the whole thing about cloning a mammoth and making it a, a, a living animal again is entirely possible just because of all of the mammoth mummies we've had with intact DNA. Saying that, we've also found lions, we've found wolves, we've found bears, like tons of animals. The only like predator I can think of that we really haven't found frozen is a saber-toothed cat. And that's because they weren't living up north. They were more southern in, in our areas down here in, in Oregon and California and stuff like that. But um, the other type is if they're just in caves. So like if a ground sloth goes into a cave and dies, it's not buried. It's underground because it's in a cave, but it's not buried. So it's not going to fossilize. So you're just finding very, very, very old bone that never got eaten by rodents. And we have a lot of those. Cave bears, I think. Cave bears is a good one as well. We've tons of cave bear bones because they live in caves, hence the name, you know? Mm -hmm. And (laughs) so it's a matter of time, hopefully, that one unlucky Sasquatch was crossing the land bridge and got stuck in a glacier and became a mummy, right? Hopefully, a matter of time. these people are right and they do live underground, we probably find them by now, maybe? I don't know. Yeah, see, I don't, I don't think know. they're underground, so I, I don't really, I don't, I don't follow that train of thought very well. I mean, they, they, they probably drop into a cave for temperature reasons or get out of the, the weather for a second, but they don't live there. There's no light. There's no food. There's no reason to be in there. There's no footprints on the ground because uh, there's no erosion in caves. And certainly if a Sasquatch used uh, a cave 30, 50, 100, 200 years ago, there might still be footprints there. Mm-hmm. Well, we found Neanderthal footprints in caves. We found cave bear footprints in caves. Why wouldn't we find Sasquatch prints in caves if they're using it? But maybe, I don't know, they've been seen in caves. Maybe uh, one would die in there and we'll get lucky that way. That would solve some of it. Although even then, I would think people would say, nah, no, nah, they used to live and now they're, they're not around anymore. Yeah. Yeah, because uh, skeptics, you know? Yeah. Anyway, interesting thoughts. Hmm. Okay. Now, one, one last thing. Did, did you have any ideas before you started working at the museum here? How many people see these things? It's mind blowing because before it like, yes, they're still rare animals and we still know that they're rare animals, but the amount of people that come in and tell us a story and it doesn't sound crazy. It's just like, I just saw one walk across the trail and that was it. Or I saw one picking a flower, like doing something that it was just like doing what it does. And how many people come in daily, weekly, monthly and say, what they saw. It's just, okay, these things are, are more out there than people are willing to admit, I think. And that also doesn't include the people that don't come in that don't want to share their story. It like, I'm still blown away. And, and at the end of the day, I go home and the, you know, there's some hard days. Cause at the end of the day, it's a, it's a gift shop. Right. And so there's some hard days where I go home and my wife tells me like, Nico, you work at a Bigfoot museum. How cool is that? Not many people get to say they they teach dinosaurs and work with Bigfoot or work looking for Bigfoot. You're, you're every you're every second grader's dream, <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> Child at heart and everything else. <laughs> 
Yeah, you'd think that uh, one of the, the, the weakest arguments against Bigfoot I've ever heard is, why don't people see them then? So you just hang out at the museum for two days. And, and you're probably in a, um, summer like it is right now, you're probably going to hear a half dozen stories or more. I think conservatively, conservatively. Well, all right, Nico, thank you very much for, uh, for spending the time with me. Let's plug some stuff because I know you have a lot of things going right now. Uh, why don't we start with this dinosaur exhibit in downtown Portland? Well, if you're in the Portland area, uh, a famous Portland artist by the name of Mike Bennett opened up this cool dinosaur art show in, in Pioneer Square called Dinolandia. And, and uh, I'm there every Friday uh, doing one of my dinosaur shows. I, I don't do the full show. It's more like I, we just hang out and talk fossils and I show you all my, my cool bones and stuff. And uh, every Friday up until September, I will be there. So stop by, say hi, and and uh, learn about some cool dinosaur stuff. And yeah, on top of that, uh, with with Fossil Team, I uh, you can find me at fossilteam.com where I do all of my classes and you can sign up for them and um, I'll be posting human evolution classes once a month, uh, especially after this, because I, I want to make sure you guys can get in there and learn about this stuff if you're really serious about it. So look for those human evolution classes. I, I, they're uh, labeled as species profile uh, as those classes. And of course, you can follow me on on Instagram at fo- uh, the.fossil.teampdx. Now, do you take requests as far as these classes that you teach? I do. I do uh, in-person custom classes for schools and 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 workplaces and anywhere that wants to just bring cool fossils in to show people. And I'll do a show and, like, and like, online classes and stuff. If people are like, hey, I really was hoping for a Triceratops class this month, I can make a Triceratops class happen. And, that's, and that, that would be so valuable for educators because, you know, I'm a former educator myself. I was an elementary school teacher and I never got to teach dinosaurs. I always taught the, the upper grades. And for some reason, that's just not part of that curriculum. But I know that there are some um, curriculum slots for dinosaurs and uh, maybe extinct mammals and fossilization and all that sort of stuff. And man, I, I wish I had you as a resource when I was in the classroom. I'll tell you that. Um, so any teachers out there, even if you're not on this side of the continent or, you know, he does Zoom classes and all that sort of stuff, um, bring Nico into the classroom. He, he's a professional educator. He's been doing this for a long time um, and he knows his stuff. And if you have anything you want to send to us uh, at the at the museum, by the way, Nico's the guy that's going to look at it. You know, I'll I'll. I'll kind of weigh in on footprints, but I always get a second opinion with Nico and Connor. And if there's a bone or something like that, or if you find a tooth or anything like that, and this has been done, people have brought in what we thought were teeth. And it turns out that they were not teeth. And Nico has always had a hand in um, identifying what the thing is in question, whether it's organic or mineral, or if it is a tooth or if it is a skull, we can tell you what kind it is. Um, Nico is an invaluable member of the team here and, um, and you're, I'm happy to have you work here as long as you can afford to work here. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think at this point, even if I stop working here, I'm still helping out and doing this sort of stuff, which isn't going to be anytime soon. So, um, but yeah, if you send in bone pictures, send in a scale item, please. Or a footprint for that matter. Yes. A scale item with the footprint would be good. The best scale item is a, uh, tape measure. So maybe just keep one with you. Yeah. Open, not just a tape measure, all royal, you know, like extend it so we can see the markings on it. 
you said tape measure. It's like, that's not what I, that's not what we mean. We, yeah. Anyway, you guys know that you're obviously very intelligent people. You're listening to our podcast and I can't thank you enough for doing that. 1 million downloads since April 1st, everybody. That is something to celebrate. That is absolutely fantastic. And I think to celebrate that, I'm going to go on vacation with my wife for our fifth anniversary, which is this week. And I'm going to find a place next to a river and bring the dog and make sure I do not have cell phone reception. So don't try to reach me. But Nico's going to be checking email here at the museum. If you need anything, let us know. Um, Hey, you can buy a Bigfoot and Beyond t-shirt if you want. Did you know that? You probably did because you listen to our podcast. Go to SasquatchPrints.com. And I think we have a couple designs now, a couple different colors. And um, Brandon, who runs that site, will probably even take requests. Um, that sort of thing. So uh, do that. And if you have questions for Bobo and I, um, I think we'll be back together uh, on the same podcast very soon because my schedule is uh, fine. The worst of it's finally over. I'm going to start uh, trying to create some space in my life. Um, and part of that space will be filled by this podcast, of course. So we'll be doing a Q&A real soon. If you have any questions for us, you can go to bigfootandbeyondpodcast.com and uh, hit the contact button or you can even like do a voicemail for us now we have that set up so if you want to hear your beautiful melodious voice on the air and have uh, me and the bobes answer the question go ahead and leave us a voicemail we're interested in what you have to say anything else i'm missing nico you got no i think that's it so uh ladies and gentlemen thank you so much tell tell everybody in the world you know about uh, the podcast you know phone the neighbors wake the kids tell them to go listen to cliff and bobes they say great stuff and other than that ladies and gentlemen keep it squatchy thanks for listening to this week's episode of bigfoot and beyond If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on iTunes. Subscribe to Bigfoot and Beyond wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Bigfoot and Beyond Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Bigfoot and Beyond, that's an N in the middle, and tweet us your thoughts and questions with the hashtag Bigfoot and Beyond. 